so today, when I said we were going to try to do different buildings in the monastery each week, and last week we started or like entering the monastery, and then we got to the cloister. This week we're not quite into the church yet, but we're working our way there. And that one of the things that I wanted to get to briefly last week and ran out of time was the sort of the Benedictine understanding understanding of materialism um, versus poverty. That in the Benedictine rule, St. Benedict does not prescribe strict uh, poverty the same way that a Dominican or a Franciscan um, is required to live. They are not mendicants. So the monasteries themselves will own things, but he does take an, a very gospel-centered approach to the understanding of material goods in that the way he approaches it is that different people require different amounts of stuff and that basically the stronger you are, the less you require is the approach that he takes. And that, but that, so some people will require more things than others. And a key um, theme within Benedict at all times is building the virtue of humility. Humility, humility, humility. If you want to talk the one virtue to learn, um, according to Benedict, it is humility, which makes sense when you look at the original sin and the primordial temptation of man is that of pride. Um, therefore, path to holiness largely starts with humility. So he said, oh, so he says, okay, so if you're one of the ones that requires a little more stuff, that's okay. Just be humble about it. Um, and that's very much the opposite approach, though, than the modern world, which usually is like, well, the more stuff, the better I am. Um, when he says like, no, that just means you're a little weaker. Um, so let's give God offering you a chance to be humble which is also gets into um, the proper understanding of why the church prescribes almsgiving as one of the tenets during Lent, is that especially nowadays, it's important to distinguish what's meant by poverty in the world, that the, and actually Cardinal Sara in his book, God or Nothing, makes this distinction very well when he says that in the church, we're called to, we need to distinguish, like I said, between what it means to be poor and what it means to be destitute. And that we have an obligation to assist the destitute because of the fact that of their human dignity and they need to be um, helped in that situation. But the church actually teaches blessed are the poor, that, there's, that we're not trying to pull everyone out that doesn't have a lot of stuff to get them richer that that's not the obligation and goal of the church because it's actually blessed are the poor. Um, and so for the most part, the purpose of almsgiving isn't for the sake of the one who's receiving the alms. It's for the sake of the one who's giving the alms. Um, that it is a spiritually good for you to give up stuff. And, th and the reason why, like all of this is that tension within Christianity that we're, we always talk about how we're a both-and religion, that instead of like either-ors within a lot of spiritual truths, like 
God being three persons, um, but one God. It's not three or one. It's three and. Jesus Christ is both fully God and fully man at the same time, not one or the other. That one of those is that there's a spiritual world and there's a physical world. That the physical world is good, but the spiritual world is better. But the physical world is still good, but the spiritual world is better. It's not an either or, it's a both and. So that's why you have these seasons within Lent, like, I mean, within the church, where you're like, oh, you'll have the feasting of, of Easter, recognizing that the world is good, Christ really did become man, that he really did die on the cross, festivity is great. Um, and this is something we'll come back to in the last class when we get into the refractory and the fact that the rule of Benedict even prescribes a pint, no, was it? I was say, it's like a liter of wine um, per monk per day. Um, like it's a pretty generous amount during, especially during Easter season. So if you ever want to eat really well, go visit a Benedictine monastery during Easter season. So there's um, that, there is this recognition like, yeah, the physical world's good, but it's, it's fleeting, it's passing, it's not eternal. So that's why um, if you also want to see really strict fasting, go visit a, a Benedictine monastery during Lent. Um, so anyway, you see, really see that tension, but really, um, captures that Benedictine spirit of, towards materialism and versus poverty. Does that make sense? Does anyone have any questions or anything to add on that? Yeah, we're not Puritans. Well, that's the old joke. The difference between the Catholic and the Baptist is we talk to each other in the liquor store. So... <laughs> All right. Um, yes. Yeah, it's a quick comment that um, it's true that uh, the world sees the opposite, that, that, that um, having a lot of wealth is considered to be a success. But uh, since you mentioned humility, um, actually, it's been my experience for many, many, many years, the best leaders in the corporate world are actually humble. There's not that many of them, but they're humble. Um, so it's, yeah, even though it's not a thing that's rewarded in general, it's been my experience that they're the ones who are actually the best leaders, even in the corporate material world. Yeah, that's a really good point. And uh, yes, Jeff. One, one other comment about poverty. There are a lot of different definitions uh, of poverty in different cultures. Uh, my son-in-law and daughter spent some, almost a year in Rwanda, and they came back and I asked them what, what was poverty there, and they said poverty was not having friends or family uh, and relationships, and uh, I thought that was pretty unique. Actually, that's a great point, especially for understanding poverty in America nowadays, too, that that would be, like there's severe spiritual poverty and social poverty in that aspect. That's a good point. Um, yes? Yeah, that is good. Um, all right, so that was from last week that we didn't get to. Moving on, but it transitions a little bit into towards prayer. And actually, before we get to prayer, what I wanted to start with was work. Because in the Benedictine rule, there's the famous motto, Ora et Labora, 
um, prayer and work. So they kind of go together. Um, and actually, the, their, the Benedictine understanding of work um, is important because it leads to prayer. Um, and it's very different than the modern understanding. Um, so, or at labor, prayer and work. Now, it's important to remember that in the Benedictine rule that there is this call for doing actual work and for praying always, coming back to prayer, but when the two are ever in tension, prayer wins. So that's the, it's prayer first before work, but even though I'm talking about work first, that's only because the prayer is more important, so I'm putting it second. Um, all right, so, or labora, the prayer and work. That Benedict, one of the things that he was very much against was idleness. And so he very much wanted to, um, to provide opportunity for there to be sort of constant, um, at least manual labor, um, specific times for prayer, specific times for reading. Like he was very structured in everything because he recognized that, what's the old phrase that like idle hands are the devil's workshop, that, um, that when you're trying to grow um, in holiness, that literally sitting around and doing nothing is not necessarily the best thing. But we're gonna, I wanna distinguish between types of work in a, in a minute because sometimes sitting and doing nothing actually is a type of work. But, um, but he was very much against idleness. And I think though, when approaching it from the modern American world that we need to remember that idleness is not the great temptation for Americans. That the actually the opposite is very true. That the temptation for Americans is overwork, not underwork. So, and this is important that Benedict is very much like do everything in moderation and with humility. And actually that point of humility that there's nothing that sort of um, shows forth in a human being more than when you meet someone who's like truly humble. Like those are always the people who are like, wow, that was a really awesome person. Like what a humble person, what a humble person that it really shines forth. And so even within his, his trying to sort of stamp out idleness within monasteries, etc., that he always comes back to, yes, there needs to be like constant work, but it always needs to be humble. And one of the points that I found very right. profound was when he talks about craftsmen within monasteries that he says that, I mean, you put a bunch of guys in a monastery with working every day for uh, multiple hours, you're gonna get pretty good at whatever they do. Um, and one of the things that he says is that they always need to approach their work with extreme humility. And if they ever reach the point where they think the monastery actually needs them for their craft, they shouldn't be allowed to do it. Um, and that, anyway, I, I just found that um, very striking, especially in the modern world where especially men have this tendency to sort of associate their worth with their work and what they do when the two really don't um, have much to do with each other. So, any, but the, it's important nowadays to distinguish though with, between what we call servile work and liberal work. 
because when I say sometimes it is work to sit and do nothing, that one of the, the things, he doesn't use the terms Benedict, but I think he would very much appreciate nowadays when he's prescribing um, moderation and work and also in prayer is that we need to always remember that there's different types of work when we're trying to um, sort of gain balance within our lives. And this is a key theme that he always comes back to too, is everything in moderation and everything in a really balanced way because of the fact that Benedict always, he refers to his rule always constantly as a rule for beginners, that beginners need moderation in what they're doing. Um, and even when he talks about prayer, he would say like, okay, only pray until you get to a point where it doesn't get super tedious because the, the average person isn't going to be able to like, do I'm going to do a vigil of prayer all the way through the night. Like there just needs to all be done within moderation. Um, and actually on that side note is I was listening to someone recently and they made a good distinction that they hate the phrase that the, the world tends to use with Catholics that actually go to church is saying, oh, they're devout Catholic. They're devout Catholic. And he's like, no, there's maybe a few of us are devout Catholics, but the better phrase is practicing Catholics because we're practicing at it. But most of us actually ever get past the practice um, or very few of us. But within work in the modern world for trying to understand that balance, you need to come back to this understanding and that we distinguish it when we're doing work between work that serves another purpose um, an earthly purpose and work that has no specific earthly purpose but so therefore the there's no purpose other than just the glorification of God in that work so and it's not that servile works bad versus liberal work but they're just different that servile work servant is work that serves another purpose meaning you're doing it just because there's an actual purpose that needs to be done for doing so, meaning you're going to work because you need to make money. Um, that would be an example of servile work. And the temptation in modern America is to make this all-encompassing and to not recognize, no, when Benedict talks about working constantly, constantly that what he's largely referring to is actually what we call liberal work, meaning it's work that doesn't necessarily have to be done, um, but is work, the work that a free man would do. That's why it's called liberal, like liberal as a, from liber, meaning free. Uh, it's the work of a free man, meaning think of someone that if you have everything you need and you don't have to be working like what would you be doing and so when you even talk about like the craftsmen that he it doesn't say there shouldn't be craftsmen within the monastery just that they should be humble if they're doing it that there's some of the greatest craftsmen of all time have been monks who have really like learned to throw themselves into this um this work of their craft because of the fact that they're doing so for no reason other than ultimately like the glorification of God. So this is like even intellectual work could be like sitting in the, a chair and contemplating like the higher things of life can be a form of work, but it would be um, liberal work. Um, gardening could be a form of work, but done properly, it could be liberal work. Um, 
etc. So that's an important distinction when we talk about that prayer work balance. Um, and like I said, yes, exactly. So that we make that distinction in education for that exact thing that the servile arts are the things you study so you can get a job and make more money. Um, they serve for another purpose, which are important. But then also the liberal arts are the things you study because they're true and good to know. And you might not get a better job because of it. And usually in modern America, you need, uh, if, if you study the liberal arts, you usually need something servile to add on top so you can actually get a job and feed your family. That, put them together. So, um, so anyway, that's an important distinction. But I think what's also important from the Benedictine rule is that he sort of bridges the gap between servile into takes the servile and turns it into liberal arts and then bridges the gap of that into prayer and part of that is that the approach to work in the benedictine rule is to pray always especially while working but it becomes difficult in the modern world to incorporate that fully because one of the key elements of his understanding of work is that it had to be manual labor. Um, and the reason why it has to be manual labor is you can do things with your hands. I mean, you can work on crafting something, etc., while your brain is only half engaged in that and, and engaged in contemplation, thinking about God, or not contemplation, meditation, or um, prayer, or thinking you can pray while you do the dishes. You can't necessarily pray while you're sitting down doing like an Excel spreadsheet because your brain has to be fully engaged there. So recognizing that that is part of the problem is nowadays, not we're not, very few of us are doing manual labor. And so it actually becomes very difficult to take the Benedictine understanding of work leading into prayer and apply it. So the best we can do is remember this distinction and then try to moderate as much as we can the servile into the liberal. Now, I think this especially is important for, um, what was I gonna say, people with, men with children at home, that this is, like I said, the hardest temptation is that, especially with men, is well to work, 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 and then, and just not spend enough time at home with their children. When it's better to make less money and spend more time with your kids, period. Um, but that's um, the temptation. So, all right. Any questions? Anything to add about work before we move into prayer? Because I was trying to actually get into the church. Because, um, but there's a lot of great that great um, painting that's very famous for sort of capturing this Benedictine understanding of work and how it leads to prayer. Is that one? It's above the mantle in the Andy Griffith show of the people out in the fields who are like praying while they're out in the field like harvesting is that this was the whole where the whole um notion of the angelus came from was that you would put actually when you put the bells up in the church that would ring out every the six hour like six noon um 6 p.m so that when people are working and it wasn't just for monks like that it started with monks, but then also ordinary people when working, that they'd be reminded to like focus the mind, come back to prayer while you're doing um, what you're doing. And so, I mean, the easy places 
work to try. I mean, we'll have to do a little bit of manual labor. So the dishes is the specialty one, like start trying to pray while you do the dishes. But there's a lot of um, <clears throat> great reminders that there's, um, yeah. So pray while you do the dishes. That's a good one. And actually, one of the things Benedict always talks about, too, is that always, whenever you're working, come back to the idea of who you're working for. Um, so that's another way within it is constantly reminding that this isn't for me and actually analyzing who you're working for, too. Because oftentimes we'll say, like, oh, I'm not working for myself, but the guy that's the workaholic that constantly tells himself, oh, it's for my family, it's for my family, it's for my family. It's like, well, is it, or is it really for you? That actually makes me think it's kind of like in The Godfather. Um, it's always like, oh, it's for my family, it's for my family. And it's like, well, yeah, but you're ruining your family. Um, so it's not really for your family. That's just a lie you're telling yourself. Um, so were you gonna add something? I was just thinking of um, our society with early retirement or so many people retiring, that if we change the thinking that our real work happens at retirement when we can focus on the liberal work. Yeah, and actually, so this is a great example of the backward understanding of work in modern America, is the understanding now we take is, well, you basically work nonstop for 60 years. If you work hard enough, you can cut off a few years out of this retirement to get to retire as quickly as possible. So make yourself miserable, work as long as you can, spend as little as much time as you can with your family for as long to get, to get all the work out of the way so that you can finally just sit and do nothing. Um, and it's amazing how that just doesn't seem to make a lot of people happy, but they always think it will. You know, a great source of that is uh, Oh yeah. Alright, a second. Okay. So yeah, best book ever written on this topic is Leisure the Basis of Culture by the Catholic philosopher Juice wait, is it I before E or E of I E. I E, okay. Joseph Pieper. He wrote a lot of good stuff, but early 20th century German Catholic philosopher who was good friends with Joseph Ratzinger. Um, anyway, leisure the basis of culture. Now, moving on to prayer. So, St. Teresa of Avila is the, so this is one of the reasons why she's a doctor of the church, is she is the saint who um, explained all, uh, most thoroughly all of the different levels of prayer and the different um, grades of prayer. And so anyway, she ended up dividing to like 12 grades of prayer. And the thing that I will say is that the only two that really concern the average Catholic or Benedictine are the first two. So unless you're becoming a mystic um, and a hermit, then you probably are never gonna worry about the other 10. Or two, maybe three, sorry. Um, because this, the third one kind of blends into the second one. Um, so, what the first two are that Benedict bases the entirety of his rule around when he's praying always 
um, our vocal prayer and meditation. And we'll start with vocal prayer. And he actually makes the point that vocal prayer is the basis of the primary basis of prayer within the church and for the for Christians. And by vocal prayer, I don't mean like the just random, like just like sh shouting at God, like, um, but rather it's not us emoting towards God. It's not any of those things. What it is, is the vocal praying of the Psalms is the primary uh, place for vocal prayer. And there's actually different elements um, within vocal prayer, like there's petition, there's praise, um, etc. But the place where we see all of that and it's sort of laid out for every one of us is in the Liturgy of the Hours. So, if you want, what's the primary job of a Benedictine monk? It's to sing the Liturgy of the Hours. So, the, the Liturgy of the Hours are for anyone not familiar is it is the the official prayer liturgy of the church you've got the mass which is the crown jewel of the liturgy of the church and then the liturgy of the hours is the prayer office that gets prayed throughout the day that's kind of like the setting that the mass goes in that they, they go together so what is it that monks are praying every day is they're praying this liturgy of the hours these specific prayers um, what is it that all priests and deacons, as part of their vow they take to do? It's actually, they're not required to say Mass every day, but they are required to pray all of the Liturgy of the Hours, sometimes called the Divine Office. Um, and so the way it's organized is it's simply the day gets organized into different hours throughout the day, of which the bell gets rung and the monks go back in the church and they pray those specific prayers that um the average hour though the way the office the way it's organized it's if you've been to vespers on sunday evening at saint mary's you get a good example of evening prayer um it's basically praying through the psalms and then there's a readings from scripture and there is um, prayers of petition. There's the always with morning evening prayer, the Our Father, recognizing that the heart of all prayer ultimately comes back to the, especially the most important line in the Our Father, the Thy will be done. Um, and that is at the root of the, the liturgy of the hours. So the one thing I would say if anybody is ever wanting to like improve their prayer life to pray more, the number one place to start is just with the Liturgy of the Hours. That if you want to pray anything, pray that. Um, and, yeah. Any idea why in the Holy Book Christian Prayer for Monday through Saturday you have laws and Vespers, but on Sunday you have Vespers 1, Vespers 2, and then Okay, so yeah, there's a book called Shorter Christian Prayer, which is like a truncated version of the Liturgy of the Hours. And 
that one thing that throws people off sometimes is that Sunday and big feast days, you have evening prayer one and evening prayer two. And this is the fact that it's in the Catholic Church that the feast day starts the night before at the vigil. Um, so evening prayer one would be Saturday night. Evening prayer two for Sunday is Sunday night. Because this is a great thing that Sunday is more than 24 hours in the Catholic Church. Um, so it basically it starts on late Saturday afternoon and it ends at midnight on Sunday. That is more that Sunday is so great it leaks into uh, Saturday. Um, yeah. So um, so I'd say the number one thing to do is pray the liturgy of the hours. That is um, sometimes hard to get into praying the liturgy of the hours if you don't know how to do it. And that's where there's a great app called iBreviary which makes it a little simpler because you can buy the books, but learning to flip where you have to go can be a little difficult. iBreviary helps, it's a free app, and you can just do like, oh, morning prayer, and you can sort of scan down and get used to it. Um, I find it inferior praying on an a, a phone, I'm not gonna lie, There's, I do it every day, but I don't like it. Um, it'd be better to use a book, but whatever. Um, technology's killing our souls. That's okay. All right. Um, so anyway, um, start with the liturgy hour. And actually, even when we get into study, that this is an important thing that people always say, well, I need to do more spiritual reading. Um, I need, well, a great place to start is the liturgy of the hours. There's even an office called the office of the readings where you go through the Psalms um, there's, you go through three Psalms at the beginning, but then there's a selected chunk of reading, both from scripture and from a father of the church that is there. And if so, you want to start some regular spiritual reading, start with the liturgy of the hours, um, that that is the, the number one place. And it's also important to remember that this is the public prayer of the entire church praying together. And that's why it is superior to private prayer. Uh, because it's the whole church praying together. So private prayer is great. The rosary is great. There's great. Um, the rosary is especially good for that. You're praying the dishes that you're not going to necessarily be like, hold your book and do the liturgy of the hours while you're doing the dishes. Like great moment to do a decade of the rosary. Um, driving in the car, etc. But the rosary is a private prayer. Liturgy of the hours trumps it as like the public prayer of the church. So every time you're praying the liturgy of the hours, you're participating in the same prayer that all the nuns, the monks, the priests, the lay people that are doing it throughout the entire church are doing that same prayer um, as you. Yes? Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting that, uh, when, that when, when a monastery or a monastic order gets slack or corrupt, that they tend to uh, minimize liturgy of the hours. All, all the great reform movements focused on the liturgy of the hours. In other words, they would sort of because you're supposed to do it every three hours originally, they would tend to forget the one in the middle of the night. And so the great the great reformers like St. Bernard would make them do all, all eight in order to, to get back on track. Yeah, and no, that's absolutely true. That you can usually tell how serious a monastery is by what time they wake up. Um, and part of that is that recognition that literature of the hours that ultimately with all prayer is recognizing that it's not about how you feel at that moment, but it's about giving God what he is due, like justice towards God. Um, I'll come back in one second. 
It's giving God what he's due. So sometimes the best you can do is just drag your tired bones um, there to do the, to do the prayer um, and let God provide the rest. Um, so the, I mean, and recognizing that one of the most precious things we can also give God is our sleep. Um, like, I mean, I have five small kids. I, so I always tell people I've been tired for 13 years, but some of you have been tired for a lot more than 13 years. The fact is uh, that sleep is always going to be the first to go. And this is an important thing that he, um, that Benedict ties in is that the actual like ordering of the office would used to involve like waking up literally in the middle of the night to go and pray and then to go back and especially recognizing that, Hey, like the devil is the big tempter in the middle of the night. So these monks need to pray for everybody else because that's the, one of the big reasons they're doing it is they're praying for everybody else so that someone's praying for you in the middle of the night. Um, but you, yeah, you can, you, I guess Tony had a great point. You can usually tell because the liturgy of the hours is one of the first things that gets thrown out when the, the devil's trying to um, get people slack. And that's actually why um, heard, I don't remember where I heard this once, but a lot of the, the better bishops that when they go and visit their um, priests of their diocese that a lot of them are famous for doing is going and um, just perusing that that priest liturgy of the hours to make sure his um, the ribbons are all in the right place so that he can tell if he's actually uh, praying the liturgy of the hours. Um, sorry, you want to say something first? How far back does that go? Uh, like ancient Israel. So actually here's an, uh, like King David. So here's the thing that Christ prayed the liturgy of the hours um, is an important thing to remember that this is basically an adaption of what the ancient Israelites were doing at the time of Christ and how they would pray. Um, it was the same thing. I mean, gr granted, there's like Christian prayers that have been added. Um, they, King David wasn't praying the Our Father because it wasn't around yet. But, um, or maybe the Psalms too because he wrote them. But anyway, so, but by the time of Christ, like he was doing morning prayer, he was doing lauds, he was doing um, the same way. Were you going to add something? Is it uh, to be done vocally out loud or when you're alone and you're reading it private, you know, quietly? Um, so is it to be done out loud or quietly? Either way. And here's the thing about vocal prayer is, actually this is an interesting fact, that when reading, there's sort of two methods of reading. There's the sort of the scan read and then there's the, you actually pronounce the words in your head. So if you can do it quietly, you have to actually pronounce the words in your head is, is a key element. And there's also an interesting thing that angels can hear the words in your head, but demons can't. Um, so there you go. So you at least need to just pronounce the words in your head. Though I would say vocal, I mean, it's kind of weird if you're out in like public to like start like doing the vocal recitations like in the street corner. But um, when possible, it's better to like to do it vocally, and actually even more so, it's better to sing. Yeah. That when in doubt, sing is the other main theme of prayer, and recognizing that a couple of different reasons why is one the recognition that the in heaven, everyone's singing, like that. Song is a higher form of speech than the spoken word. Um, the choirs, there's a reason why we call them choirs of angels, because they literally are singing. Um, 
And what we're doing with the Liturgy of the Hours, just like the Mass, is we are participating in the liturgy that's going on in heaven. It is merely, um, we're not creating the liturgy, we're actually just merely participating in what's already going on. Um, and singing also, um, there's several things about it. Is One, it makes you um, very vulnerable. Um, there's, I was hearing a talk about this from a Benedictine monk that it makes you sort of vulnerable before God because most of us aren't very good singers, especially. And he actually made a point in his talk when he said that, like, for instance, he said there's something vulnerable about singing. Like, you can't, have you imagined someone, like, with a knife trying to stab you while singing? And my first thought was, he's, this guy's never seen an opera. But, um, <laughs> but you, um, and the thing about singing the Psalms is um, the church has a very easy method for singing the songs of Gregorian chant, which was invented very early on to make, basically, and it was the standard way of singing for Benedictine monks because anybody can do it without actually being a good singer. Um, with a little effort, I should say. It, you don't just magically start. And actually, a great place to learn how to do Gregorian chant in a really simple way of how to chant the Psalms is on YouTube. There's a Catholic musician and artist named David Clayton, and he has... Actually, he has a website called The Way of Beauty. Um, and then also on YouTube, he has his psalm tones. And actually on that YouTube, if you ha if any of his YouTube talks come up, it's worth listening to because he's a great speaker. Yeah. So is it not about the, it's a corporate prayer versus uh, like just praying our own prayer? Yeah, it's not just you. It's all of us. It's because the that we're all praying the same prayer. Mm -hmm. And we're all praying together. Now, that doesn't mean that there's no place for private prayer. And that's why I say, concerned with two, that this is number one, and there's a reason why it comes first, that this is the main prayer of the church and for all Christians. And the place always to start. But the second form of prayer that we're all called to is meditation and it's important to distinguish what we understand as meditation from what the world understands as meditation because they're the exact opposite things um and and actually the terms that always get mixed up too in the catholic church by people is meditation and contemplation um but there's also two distinct different very important distinct differences um so what meditation in the world's understanding is the buddhist understanding which is to empty your mind of all thoughts like that's meditation in the world's understanding or the buddhist understanding so like buddhism you're trying to like you have like use different techniques to basically empty everything out of your brain for the sake of emptiness like, that's what nirvana is, is it's emptiness. It's the nothing, um, the, the abyss. As opposed to the Christian understanding is to empty out the distractions out of your brain so you can engage your intellect to think about 
the holy things, to think about God, to fill your brain and your mind with the good things. So it's the opposite. And actually, um, it's, Buddhism gets creepy, especially when you think about the fact that, it, that evil is the absence of the good. So ultimately, the greatest evil of all is nirvana, the abyss. Like, that's pure evil, um, as opposed to pure being, which is God. Um, so, anyway, there, that's why Eastern mysticism is, the church has always said, is like one of the greatest dangers of the modern world. Um, so, anyway, meditation, it is the act of engaging the intellect to contemplate, um, not to contemplate, to meditate upon the um, truths of the faith. And so this is, there's different um, techniques for how to do this. Ignatius of Loyola was famous, particularly within um, meditating of explaining like, all right, here's some like proper techniques of um, start with some vocal prayer to like try to get rid of the, the external thoughts. So, I mean, imagine it's like you're at Adoration. At, you go to Prince of Peace to their beautiful little Adoration Chapel that you can't usually sit down and immediately start meditating on things. That maybe start with the rosary, start with something, like try to get rid of the distractions um, around you. But then, if you're meditating on a passage of Scripture um, from that you're not just like sitting and reading and like, let, how do I feel about this? Is use your brain to imagine yourself there. What does it look like? What's going on? Um, it's active use of the intellect. And, or thinking about the, I mean, different mysteries of the faith in, can be a form of meditation. Thinking about what Christ did. This is why um, the, the most famous book of sort of meditation, and actually the number two selling book of all time, um, behind the Bible, not Harry Potter, but <laughs> The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Tempest. that it's uh, literally like an aid in meditating on the life of Christ. Like that's at the form of what meditation is in the church. Um, this is what Lectio Divina is. Lectio Divina is prayerfully, slowly reading through the Bible so that you can meditate on it, like that you can think about it in a very deep way. Um, so this is the work we do when we're personally praying is the act of meditation. What contemplation is, is the work that God does. Like you can't, you can't choose contemplation. It's sometimes when we're meditating or praying within the church that God will give you like these moments where it's like, all right, I'm doing my best trying to like think towards God to move towards him. And then you'll have like these moments of divine clarity of like where you're, you're, you know, like those like, wow, something that like, that's amazing. Like just like pop in your head or you like feel that, um, and you like, was it feel the feels? Uh, no, like that you like these moments of grace that'll happen very rarely, but every once in a while, sometimes in the Christian life, that that's contemplation and you have no power over it. Um, like all you can do is your work, the meditation side and the vocal prayer side, and that's something up to God. So it's not, um, contemplation's a grace. It's not something that you, um, choose. Yeah. Is that the third level according to St. Teresa? No. no. Um, that is, so it's not, 
it's not in the the, the levels because that's um that's God's work. These are the levels of the things that we're doing. Um, wait, was it on prayer levels? I didn't actually even read past like level three because I when I got prayer into oh infused contemplation. There you go. That's level five. But that's it's infused. Like think of your. It's not anything you do for it. Um, Sure. Like it's, I mean, the Holy Spirit who infused the prayer does the work. Um, so level three, which some of us are able to do, some of us are not. It depends on different moments and different, but even that requires grace sometimes, is what's called effective prayer. Um, which is, if meditative, you're engaging the intellect, then effective, you're engaging the will towards God. Um, and usually this starts with like praying. Actually, this is where the church does um, the acts of faith, hope, and love are foundational within prayers, those three prayers that particularly the act of faith and the act of hope when you're trying to do meditative prayer are really important. And praying the act of love when you're trying to do effective prayer, like the, move the will towards God. But sometimes you can't move the will. Like sometimes... I mean, what's that line in um, Christmas um, Carol, the book that, like, that um, sometimes, you know, your mood gets changed by, like, a blob of mustard or, like, a little undigested gravy. Like, sometimes the will's not there. Sometimes you're feeling grumpy and you just have to drag your bones. Um, but other times you'll be praying and, like, the will will be moving towards God. Like, you'll really be, um, have, like... Yeah, your will. Like, you're really, like, will be able to make that act of love towards God, and you're not going to necessarily be thinking about things, but rather, like, it's going to be coming from the heart, and that's good. Um, it's easier for some people than others, and it's, this is why this, it's a, for beginners, is that you're, there's no requirement within the church that you ever have to be, like, feeling good feelings, the requirement is, no, do what you're supposed to, be, to do within prayer, giving God the justice. And you know what? Sometimes then the grace, the feelings will come. But. I, mean, I, I was just thinking of my own experience. Lent and Easter has been, I guess for me, it's not the good feeling. It's like really feeling the sorrow and the pain and the, the suffering. Yeah, that's a great example of effective prayer. Like when you're contemplating the cross during Lent and thinking about the sorrow of Christ, like at times like you'll have to like intellectually like force yourself to like think about it like, yeah, this really happened. Like what would that be like? And sometimes you like really feel like, man, that real sorrow. Um, but you start with the meditation. Sometimes it'll go into the effective. Um, so that's when I say we're called to two, sometimes three. Um, because you don't necessarily have as much control over the third as you, as the second. Does that make sense? All right. Um, what, yes. What geographical area are we talking about today? The church. Yeah, the church. Yeah, the cloister went from we're doing the work outside and we moved into the church. So, um, all right. Anyone else have anything they want to add? Questions, comments, snide remarks. All right, then I guess we will close in prayer. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. amen. 
God our Father, you sent your Son into the world to be its true light. Pour out the Holy Spirit he promised us to sow the truth in men's hearts and awaken them to the obedience of faith. May all men be born again to new life in baptism and so enter the fellowship of your one holy church through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. In the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen.